Welcome to Disability Talks, a podcast produced by Abilities in Motion. I'm your host, Shelley Hauser. Join us for real conversations and no-nonsense talk from everyday people with disabilities living their most independent everyday lives. Tune in for the latest news surrounding disability, accessibility, and independence, where conversations aren't dissed and stories that need to be told aren't missed. So let's talk. Welcome back, listeners. This is Shelley Hauser, and I'm your host of Disability Talks. Today's guest is Canadian author, award-winning journalist, executive producer, and host of digital series Vox Media and NBC News, Liz Plank. She is currently the CEO of Liz Plank Productions and the columnist for MSNBC. Her creative and funny approach to journalism has landed her interviews on The Today Show, The Daily Show, MSNBC, CNN, ABC, BBC World, and more. Liz uses her platform to raise the voices of those who are often not heard in society. Good afternoon, Liz. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us. This is a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled. It's going to be a good conversation. We have so much to talk about today. Mm -hmm. So why did you decide that you wanted to be a journalist? You had posted recently that your, your writing skills were not the greatest at a younger age. No. Oh, my gosh. No. I, I hated reading uh, because, uh, yeah, undiagnosed ADHD for sure had something to do with that. I just, you know, what's funny is that the first book I actually read and enjoyed was when I was 11 years old and it was of the biography of Helen Keller. But yeah, I couldn't read a page without uh, having to reread it. And so I was very distracted and it gave me, it produced so much anxiety because I, I, you know, you have to read to be able to really get the skill to write. So I never, ever, ever had journalism on my dance card reader. So, so communication didn't actually feel like something I was necessarily good at. But um, I what realized that it was, you know, media was just the best way to affect social change. Um, before I started writing and, and I moved to London, I actually was, um, yeah, I worked at a community center for people with disabilities. Ah. And I was actually just going to go into social work. And one of the things that just I found so frustrating with my job is that I felt like I wasn't enacting change. You know, I would come into work every day and I would see, you know, the members of the community come in having been mistreated in their homes, not having access to jobs, being living in poverty, right? Like being discriminated against all these social ills that, you know, the disability community has to deal with. And so that's where I, I decided to go into what I thought was going to be like policy or government work without really knowing what that meant probably but that's when I ended up just starting to write and that's how one of the first article well, the first article I wrote ended up changing a rule for the 2012 Olympics where they were going to force female boxers to wear skirts and so I remember just being like oh this is interesting because <laughs> I can write something here and change things, but I felt more satisfied <laughs> by some of the impacts that I was seeing just that I could do through my writing. You know, they say the pen is mightier than the sword. Mm-hmm. And, and while social work is the grassroots of, of advocacy, you putting were, you know, pen to paper, you reach a lot of viewers. Right. 
And, and my, you know, the goal would be, you know, one of the things that's so important is that we pay social workers, uh, livable wages that we, that we give them the support and the resources that they need so that their, their potential and, and their talent is not lost in a system that, that degrades or devalues them, you know? And that I think comes from misogyny and sexism, right? We devalue the things that women are traditionally good at and we overvalue the things that we think men are supposed to be good at. And so it creates huge inequalities. And so, yeah, social work is is the most important profession in the world. And social workers should uh, have lives where not only they're you know compensated fairly and they have good working conditions, but they also are making the impact that they have the ability to make. You posted recently about supporting disabled owned businesses. Why did you post that? And, and why is that so important for society to see that? It's like. It's like, duh, right? Like, like, I know, you know, it's just, hello. Like we talk about every (laughs) other identity and, and, you know, female owned businesses and supporting black owned businesses and uh, Asian owned businesses. But why is, you know, disabled owned businesses, not something that necessarily always comes to mind. Um, You know, the disabled community is struggling in, in, in ways that I, I think is so under, uh, appreciated and, and underreported. And so it, it would be legal for someone to pay someone 30 cents just because they have a disability. It is, it is 2021. And, uh, you know, 80% of people with disabilities are, don't have a job right now. And so that is just such a missed opportunity for us as a society to tap into the talent of people with disabilities. And, um, you know, we can talk about awareness all day. It is such a lost opportunity for our society. It is such a lost opportunity for corporate America. It is such a lost opportunity to not tap into the talent of people with disabilities. That's a loss on our part when we leave out people. And uh, particularly with disability, we can talk about awareness all day long, but economic justice is at the root of, of any movement. We, we can say that, but if they are forced to live without dignity and in poverty and don't have access to work, like work is basic. It should be, it's not a privilege, right? It should be something that everyone should have the ability to do because that's, how we live in a capitalistic society. Like you, in order to live, you have to work. And so to say you can't do it um, because of something you didn't choose is discrimination and it is something that I think is, is extremely important. I know students with disabilities often don't go to college or finish college, but that deficiency in pay, at least in Pennsylvania, comes from a law from 1938. I don't know if that's across the, the nation, but that's pathetic that they were, yeah, that they were valued and seen as, oh, it's going to take them longer to do this task or longer to be trained. Therefore, they're worth less. Right. And that we're helping them, right? We, if you call it a training program, right? Or like a, a specific name, but it's not. It's, it's again, they're doing work for you. <laughs> it's so screwed up, you know? You did a really great piece that I've always show the, um, the video that you did in 2016 of why people with disabilities have a problem voting. And you were at a conference. Do you remember that video? Okay. And then you did something else in 2017 with ADAPT. Of course. And so tell us about those pieces. And did you see any positive change come out of any of that? I mean, that's the thing. You know, your, your question is so 
good because it's something I've, I think a lot about. And I'm at the point where I feel really lucky that I've, uh, that I got to cover, you know, disability conferences that I get to interview incredible people like Colette and, and Emily Ledeau and Melissa Thompson and Stephanie Thomas, right? All these really incredible activists and writers and media personalities with uh, disabilities. But I do ask myself right now in 2021, like, what next? Like, I'm very lucky that I've been able to use what I'm good at to try and do some good (laughs) and have a positive impact. But I do find it frustrating that I don't see things change. And I do find it frustrating that there aren't more people with disabilities in newsrooms, that I do feel this tension about what my place is. And I am interested in impact. I am uh, exploring. And this is where like, I love your, if your listeners have ideas, cause I'm, I'm in, I'm in brainstorm mode basically right now of how do I bridge the gap between telling stories and having more of an impact? Um, the best thing that non-disabled people can do is talk to other non-disabled people about their ableism, right? So that it's not the, the labor of people with disabilities to explain ableism over and over and over again, which I think is completely dehumanizing. And that a lot of being like a good ally is actually most of your work should be done within your identity group. So where I see the most impact that I can do right now is, yes, I love telling stories about people with disabilities, but I also want to think about how I can have more conversations and create more change within institutions that are run by non-disabled people because of the world that we live in and how that can lead to just more structural change. You know, I'm thinking about Imani uh, Barberin, who talks so much about, I mean, she's a disabled Black queer woman and talks about it constantly that in disability, she's forgotten as a Black woman. Uh, There are so many intersections of disability that that then make it even harder um, to be included in these conversations. Why are we always the forgotten ones? And I think you and Judy Human had recently been back and forth on Twitter about when are we going to finally put a ramp in at the Oscars? Yeah. What the frick? I know. Like, they have to go around. Basic. It would make it so much easier for everybody to have a ramp rather than those big lumbering steps. Yes. Jennifer Lawrence fell off. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> like, it's hard. That was like, you couldn't cover that up if you tried. <laughs> yeah, she took a she took a stumble. Yeah, exactly. But it's it's you're so right. And I I didn't know that there wasn't a ramp, right? It was I think Victor Pineda and there were conversations happening and and I was like, I'm sorry, what? And if you notice too, we had our first disabled director ever nominated, but there was like nothing about it. And I'm not an entertainment reporter. But I'm, I'm going to try and write a story about it because I'm like, wait, no one wrote the like this. There's just not even a single article. It's cool when it's any other identity, like we should still make a big deal. And, and it's the largest group. Like it's like it intersects with every other group. It's every race. Yes. Color, sexual identity, income level. Yeah. In every part of the world. And it's like 61 million of us. Literally. Yeah. I think things are changing, right? Like even... Comparing my reporting on the election in 2016 versus 2020 was completely different, right? Like 2016, 
Hillary Clinton had for the first time, right, a platform for a disability, which again, 2016, first time, what? But it happened. And by 2020, obviously Donald Trump never even mentioned, you know, had disability anywhere on his website and it was not even an accessible website. Like we can't even begin with Donald Trump and disability. Like, but every other Democratic candidate made their website accessible. And so that's a, that's big. Like those, we, we heard disability in the acceptance speech of our, of our current president and disability had never been mentioned. It is getting better. You know, people are adding it to the list when they name the things. It's still the last one, but it's changing slowly, but we do need to ramp it up. No pun intended. No, we do. I remember in, even in the debates, the top six candidates all had some sort of fleshed out disability policy when they were running. And then when they were on the debate stage, they had a short conversation, but a conversation clearly about persons with disabilities and how to integrate them better into society moving forward. But the one thing I wanted to talk about was you actually interviewed young first-time voters for the 2020 elections. How did that work? And, and what did you learn from that? I love that. It was my favorite piece. Oh, I had so much fun with the with them. Um, so so yeah, when Donald Trump was elected, I was covering the the initial protests in New York, and uh, through that, I was literally at Union Square. You know, the day after the election, pretty traumatized. <laughs> and uh, Jack, uh, Mr. Jack, as I know him, a uh, teacher for uh, students with disabilities in New York, came, sort of came up to me and. And just said, you know, I, I follow your work. And, and I came in this morning to a, an entire room of kids crying. That broke me uh, and was truly just devastating to think about. Yeah, just how children with disabilities or anyone with disabilities, just the feeling of like, oh, wow, this person laughed at me, mocked me, did the thing that I'm told, uh, you know, is not supposed to happen. And they they won, and they're the most powerful person in the world. That so that burn right uh, was significant. So Jack and I kept in touch. We ended up emailing again, and he said, you know, there a lot of these kids were kids, and now they're turning eighteen, and they're actually going to be, be voting for the first time, and they're going to be voting against the person that doesn't stand for justice and freedom for everyone. So I I pitched it, and we ended up interviewing them over over Zoom and. Just uh, having a really wonderful conversation about, uh, yeah, voting for the first time and what it meant to them. And so, yeah, it's, it was such a fun story. Perfect. I think with that, we're going to take a short commercial break and we'll be back with Liz Plank. Abilities Emotion is a Pennsylvania-based nonprofit organization dedicated to helping individuals with disabilities live their lives on their own terms. Abilities Emotion strives to eliminate psychological stereotypes, physical barriers, and outdated attitudes that prevent social and civic inclusion, as well as promote the independent living movement to empower, educate, and advocate for individuals with disabilities. For more information about programs and services Abilities Emotion provides, call 610-376-0. 010 or visit our website at www.abilitiesinmotion.org. And we're back with Liz Plank from Canada. What part of Canada are you from, actually? I'm from Montreal. Um, yeah. And uh, but I've been living in New York for yeah, almost eight years. 
So now you're stuck in America with us for a little while longer. I am stuck. Yes. Uh, but I am go back. Like I'm going back to Montreal for pretty much like part of the summer. Um, and thankfully I have, I got my green card right before the pandemic, which is a huge privilege. So I can actually go back. But if I hadn't, I, I would really be stuck here. I wouldn't be able to go and see my family. So I'm very grateful. So I wanted to talk to you about why you wrote the book for the love of men from toxic to a more meaningful masculinity. What drew you to write this book? What drew me to write this book is that women aren't really the problem <laughs> when it comes to uh, I mean, some women, trust me, but but meaning, you know, the things that we call, quote unquote, women's issues are actually men's issues. Uh, if we talk about violence against women, it's it's men's violence against women. The majority of violence um, against men and women, by the way, is m- male violence. And so we kind of leave that part out. Uh, <laughs> But the more research I did and the more interviews I did, the more I realized how many benefits they get from gender equality and how it, you know, that patriarchy, I knew patriarchy hurt everybody, but I didn't know that feminism could really have so many tangible, positive benefits on men. And like, no one told me this. Um, So I started realizing, wow, we are talking about this so in the wrong way, right? It should feel good. And it should make you and other people feel better about yourself and better about the world. Activism is amazing. Feminism is beautiful. Gender equality is liberating for everybody. So the more I, I did research and the more I talked to men also, the more I realized, how little, you know, they knew about this because I didn't know about it. So how could they know about it? I want it to feel fun and I want to create framings that are, that are constructive and that offer people solutions so that they realize that they are and can be part of the solution. From a disability perspective, I think one of the coolest stories that you talked about was Darcy. He's a gay black gentleman that uses a wheelchair. And he talked about how it was disappointing that society didn't see him. And we talked about that earlier. Didn't see him as gay. Didn't see him as a person with a disability. Didn't see him as Afro-American. But affection plus disability, what does that equal? Mm. You know, when you get a man that wants to show his affection, plus he has a disability, say a visual disability like Darcy's, what, is, what does society think or perceive of him And are they right or are they wrong about it? Well, interviewing men with disabilities was, I I learned the most about masculinity, interviewing men who do not fit neatly into the ideals of it, right? So, and I think men with disabilities, more more than any group that I got to interview, really spoke to how unrealistic the ideals of masculinity are, right? That by virtue of being in a wheelchair or by virtue of being in the 80% of people with disabilities who can't, you know, aren't uh, given the opportunity uh, to have jobs, to not have that economic independence and uh, sustenance means you're not a man. You're not a provider. You're not a man. Um, You're not a protector, right? that maybe you need protection, right? Which is, by the way, kind of, I mean, Victor Pineda talks about this. The best 
he quotes like, he says the best people are people who need people. And so, um, yeah, DRC would talk about coming into a room full of men and, you know, that he would have to wear like a really nice suit to stand out. Yeah. It like compensate for his disability and, and that he could like those interactions with other men, I think are really interesting. And that, you know, it's, it's different than it is for women with disabilities. Right. Uh, one of my good friends, Molly, a very famous blind YouTuber, and she talks about how a lot in for dating for her as a woman with a disability, you know, men, because they are told you're the protector, right? Your, this is your job. Then it can become actually, they like making decisions for her or taking on this. It's not really being a protector at all. It's, uh, you know, the opposite. Those nuances are, are really, really interesting. I think men with disabilities, particularly just talked about, yeah, how difficult it was just to find affection and, um, and, and just date in general because of the limits of masculinity. Are they, are they doing anything to change that in society? How are they going to crush that stigma? Yeah, I think it's up to all of us. You know, I was listening to Imani Barber and talk about it in the framework of voting rights, right? That we talk about voting rights and, and obviously it is completely related to the race and racism in America and, and voter suppression is, or it is the suppression of black people voting. But she also, she pointed out, she was like, all of these are ableist, making sure that voting is not accessible, right? That there's not polling stations that are available, that you're not, that you don't have to wait in line for a very long time, which you just can't do if you have a certain disability. It's just wild. It's de- completely, you know, inhumane. And she said, you know, this is the lost opportunity because no one will talk about how this is limiting and suppressing people with disability. And she's like, if we talked about that, it would just create a way stronger argument and a truer argument for, for fighting against these laws. But she's like, but y'all don't even talk about us. And to me, it's, it's similar with masculinity, right? That we can have conversations around masculinity that are, I don't know, small, that are not small, but not to compare, but, but I think that are small in the way that like, well, you play small, right? It's like, I'm just playing small. I'm just, I'm taking up a little bit of space. Or we could have conversations about masculinity where we, we take up a lot of space and we say, how big can this revolution really be? Do we want a knockoff kind of like version of liberation and freedom where some men have a little bit more freedom and leeway? Or do we want that for everyone? And we want like full radical like humanity and dignity and like, and I think the latter, right? So the more we, when we talk about masculinity, that we make that conversation intersectional, because if we free a black disabled gay man, we as a collective, right? In this movement, free that person, everyone's free, right? So that's the way that I kind of like to think about it. And this is where also as a, you know, white, uh, cis, non-disabled woman writing about masculinity. What I want to see is us, you know, that was the point too of incorporating as many voices as I could, because those are the voices we should really be listening to about how to revolutionize masculinity. Yeah. And you checked off three boxes all in one interview with Darcy. And I think that was really fabulous. (laughs) He's amazing. He's incredible. Because it is intersectionality. It does overlap 
your sexual identity, your income level, your color, your race, your your gender. And, you know, he's ticked off a lot of good boxes right there. Yeah. He's great. Yeah. DR, his last name is Charrington. Everyone should follow him. Uh, he's a great follower on social media. He actually, um, yeah, he's worked with companies like Uber. He's worked with a lot of different places. He's a PhD. Like he's like on another level of, um, you know, helping making the world more accessible. And I was really appreciative that he yeah, took the time to tell us, you know, his story. I think last year you you had a short little podcast series called Heart Homework. Yes. And I listened to all of them. Aww. And I got little pieces out of each one of them. And you talked about persons finding their tribe. And as it relates to persons with disabilities, I wanted to know if you could explain what finding your tribe means. You talked about what? Um, denial, anger, bargaining, sadness, and acceptance. And each one of them were so profoundly healing. Mm-hmm. And it made me think about things in a different way. So thank you for that. Aww. What do you think finding your tribe means? Yeah. Well, I'm, first of all, thank you. I'm so glad it was helpful. That was why I did it. I was just like, I feel like we just, I need healing and I need like, you know, these conversations around mental health. So I'm glad that it was, that it was useful. And thank you for listening through all of them. Um, so yeah, I think we are hardwired for community. We are hardwired for connection and anyone that tells you different, it's just, it is what it is. You know, that's why, um, attunement, for example, right. This idea of babies, uh, looking to their caregiver for attunement, that if I smile, you smile back. If I look angry, I look sad. You look concerned that you know how I'm feeling and that you're seeing how, and that you're seeing me. Right is the fundamental principle of life. And I think that we forget how just, just crucial that is and how that conversation around friendship and community is related to the conversation around activism and social justice. That truly what discrimination is, is not hearing someone, is not seeing someone. and it is a form also of disconnection from them and saying, we won't connect with you. You're, and particularly with disability, particularly with disability is isolation, is forced isolation. And, um, and again, you know, one example, again, with work, well, because you're like this, you can't be part of, right, the workplace, that you're not meant to, you don't belong here. And that's what racism is. That's what sexism is. I think even when we think about employment, I think truly, yes, it's about money. But to me, like, yeah, discrimination of, uh, against people with disabilities in the workplace is a loneliness problem. It, it is, uh, to me, a mental health problem uh, because we are cutting off people from community. And I also, I'm curious what you think, but I think, think a lot about how weird it is that there's not more spaces for everybody, right? That, that I think when we think about community for people with disabilities, and by we, I mean, I don't know, our society at large, it's like, well, let's create community centers for people with disabilities. No, like why, 
what? Like why, why isolate it? Yes, exactly. It's just more isolation. And again, more of this, like you belong here and we're going to be over there. And everybody else is over here. Exactly. And that's, that to me, that breaks me. Like it's just, and it's everywhere. It's in the way that we talk about these issues. It's in the way that, again, we don't have reporters with disabilities. There's, there's just like, yeah, what you just said, everyone else is here and you're going to be over there. That is just, I think, a violation of, of human dignity and human rights. And I, I want us to, I want non-disabled people to open their eyes to the fact of just their own ableism and how it's holding them back from in, interacting and engaging and, and enjoying all of the beauty of everybody around them, including people with disabilities. Non-disabled society is really missing out on a lot of things. Exactly. Yes. But society is really missing the mark because by nature, persons with disabilities are problem solvers. We fight to be seen. We fight to be heard. We fight to figure out how and where and to what extent we fit it within society. And the best way that we can figure out because this world was not designed for us. And like you said, it's getting there, but it's got a long way to go. But yeah, we, we just we just fight for it and we shouldn't have to. It's just silliness. It's silly. It's exactly right. It's just silly. You're right. It's not what I'm thinking, but that's what I'll say. <laughs> no, but that's it. That's that. I love that term. I'm going to totally like. You can have that. You good. You can take that. No, I'm, I'm going to credit you, obviously. But it's just silly. It's just like, come on, let's stop being silly. What, what's going on here? We are a work in progress as human beings. It really are. I think it's so liberating to do the work of uncovering who you really are. So that's what I, that's what I, I try and do every day and I'm still working on. That's what I hope for everyone else. So one last question, where can our listeners find you out there on social media and follow you and learn more about you? Thank you. I am feminist tabulous on Instagram. Uh, if that's too complicated, uh, I get it. It's Liz Plank. If you put in Liz Plank, it, it'll populate Twitter as well. Um, and I'm on TikTok. Liz Plank uh, had a lot. Of, I think TikTok is such a fun platform with, uh, with so many content creators with disabilities. And they just, uh, thanks to the Deaf Collective, uh, this amazing organization started actually by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's brother. They TikTok now has captions for deaf and hard of hearing. Fabulous. Yeah, since yesterday. So we're, we're you know, evolving slowly. Are you on LinkedIn at all or Facebook? I think I'm on LinkedIn. I, Elizabeth Plank, maybe. No, I think I'm Liz Plank on LinkedIn. And obviously you can buy my book. I would love that because um, then it allows me to write more books. French. Yes, it just came out in French. You can get it in French. You can get it in English. You can get it on Audible. Please buy it from a, your local bookstore because they all really need your dollars. And um, yeah, that's where I am right now. That's my stuff. I'm working on a disability and employment initiative. And so um, hopefully I'll, I'll have more news about it soon, but I'm still in the, in the trying to figure out the planning of it. So stay tuned. <laughs> and I think with that, we're going to wrap up our episode today with Liz Plank. Liz, thank you for being here today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's so nice talking with you, Shelly. We appreciate it. And to our listeners, hit that like and subscribe button so you never miss an episode of Disability Talks.
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Disability Talks. Want to keep the conversation going? Then visit our website at abilitiesinmotion.org or connect with us on social media. And remember, don't dis my ability.